Hi, I'm Gordon Lamp here with the Real Finds Podcast, a podcast series where we interview key entrepreneurs, scientists, and activists who are shaping real estate and, as a result, our world. George is the Chief Executive Officer at Commercial Brokers International and founding partner of Pono Asset Management based out of Los Angeles, California. On the podcast, we dive into commercial real estate auctions, the evolution of real estate marketing, effectively using social media to get eyes on assets, how to educate the consumer, and how to add value online. It's well worth a listen. George, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me, Gordon. So before we start off, uh, can you introduce yourself a little bit to our guests? Absolutely. Um, George Pino with Commercial Brokers International. Um, I've been a commercial, I've been in real estate now for 35 years. I've owned my own company since uh, 2006 with a business partner. And uh, we are a uh, smaller full service brokerage firm out of Los Angeles. We have uh, about 15 agents and uh, all in. And uh, we do all aspects of commercial real estate, including we also have an investment company as well. So can you talk a little bit about um, how you got into the real estate business? Because look, there's a lot of ways people get into real estate. I was kind of dragged in uh, a couple different times. Um, I'm a fourth generation broker. What got you into the real estate world? A fluke. <laughs> <laughs> To be honest with you, um, I mean, originally what got me in, and I started off doing real estate auctions for a company called Kennedy Wilson at the time. They were the largest real estate auction company out there um, in the world. And uh, I had just gotten out of college. A friend of mine was working for them on the transactional uh, sales side of it. They asked if uh, I actually had some time in the summer. Um, I had uh, some time off and they asked if I wanted just a quick summer job. I said, sure. And uh, about a month into it, they offered me a full-time position. I thought, you know, this is interesting. I'm going to do this. So, um, you know, there, there's much to be said about uh, young and dumb, uh, not knowing much about the industry and just kind of jumping into it full uh, full steam ahead, feet first. And, uh, you know, never look back. Within uh, a few years, uh, we were I was running their closing department, basically overseeing a team of uh, eight other people looking at all the closings. We're doing thousands of properties a year um, around the country. And then uh, in 1993, broke off. Um, we started our own real estate auction company uh, with a gentleman named Fred Sands out here in California. And in about a year and a half, just from going after BizDev and really pushing it forward. Um, we actually became the number two real estate auction company out here. Um, so it was really nice to be able to come back and do that. And then from there, we were able to, uh, we were offered a position to start a commercial real estate brokerage arm for a residential firm. And we did that until they sold to Sotheby's uh, and uh, we decided to break off on our own. So I want to follow up on the whole idea of real estate auctions, because I think there's a lot of confusion, even from some very sophisticated commercial brokers on how the auction process works. I know, look, yeah. I've bought things at auction for folks and like, I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert. So you are an auction expert. Can you tell us a little bit how the auction world works for real estate? Well, the auction world's changed quite a bit from when I was doing it. But um, originally, when I first started in uh, real estate auctions, we did a lot of what we call open outcry auctions. And what was great about that is, um, you know, we would come into a market, we would blast it out saying that this property is for sale. We would use a minimum bid scenario so they knew at the very least if it's um, the bid was at that price or above, it would sell. And typically, the, we 
marketed it so that the minimum bid was about 60% of actual value. So people could see that, but it generated a lot of interest. And the next thing you know, people are bidding against each other, which is great because we had a very small fallout ratio because we could always come back and say, if someone were trying to retrade during escrow or during the due diligence, we would just say, you know, we have a backup buyer. You were right there. <laughs> they were bidding. They're only $1,000 off you. So if you want to move forward, let's move forward. If not, we're going to go back to them. Um, and it allowed us to actually have a lot more higher percentage of closings. And surprisingly, a lot of times we would actually sell the property for more than they could have bought it for before we took it to auction. Um, just from the demand that we were able to create through the marketing aspects. And I think that's one of the key things a lot of people forget about is that, you know, ultimately we are any real estate agent. We're really first and foremost, or should be a marketing company. So, and I think a lot of agents forget that aspect of it. So a lot of our investors have um, primarily bought at auction land because land is typically, you know, unless you're dealing with, you know, a super fun site, it's a little less complex. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, how does the retrade process typically work for buying something at auction? Because like, uh, you know, for buildings, I, I can imagine it gets pretty complicated sometimes. Uh, is is that a complicated process or is it is it a lot simpler than I'm making it out to be? It's uh, I, I think it's a lot simpler. I mean, it's just like any other transactional deal. Um, the retrade process typically happens during the due diligence aspect, um, you know, where most of the due diligence is done up front. So a lot of times, even when we went into uh, the, the real estate auctions, they would before they could actually bid. A lot of times they'd have a pamphlet or a booklet rather that was a good four or five inches thick that had all the due diligence items on there. So they had to go through it and they would actually waive inspections and or due diligence. They were all up to date, you know, all, all up to date title, um, environmentals, whatever third party reports that we thought might be needed or would have. So a lot of it was waived up front. So there was no reason for them to really it took away the reasons for them to retrade by having it done up front. Um, but people would still try. <laughs> so a little less scary than I'm imagining and, and maybe some yeah. folks. Um, so in terms of uh, going through, I know you mentioned marketing. And yeah. uh, look, uh, there's so many of us in real estate that that if, you know, we're not brokers first, we're definitely, or if we're brokers first, we're definitely marketers second, right? Yes. So um, what, how have you seen the marketing world for real estate evolve over the last, you know, decade? Because for me, I'll admit, I've been in the business for a lot longer than my age would suggest. But at the same time, like, I, I'm in a, you know, I'm a still millennial, right? So um, in, ter in, terms of, in terms of the marketing world, have you seen a substantial evolution? And, uh, and how has that kind of influenced the way that you market properties? Uh, number one, huge evolution, um, just in the last 10 years or so. I mean, and especially with commercial real estate. Commercial real estate historically has been kind of a old boys club, so to speak. Um, a lot of it was, you know, tr a lot of the transactions were done by people that you knew they were done off market. And ultimately, though, we always felt that it wasn't really our in our client's best interest to do that. You know, the, the bottom line from what we learned from the auctions is, is if we get more eyes on the property, if we get more people through the property, ultimately, we can create demand. And therefore, you know, basic laws of supply and demand if demand goes up and the supply stays the same, then prices are going to go up. So 
looking at that, we really started embracing it. And I think we were one of the first companies to really start looking at some of the SEO work and rechanging a lot of the stuff on the back end. Um, you know, all of our, uh, right now we have our company, we have, I think, uh, 37 five-star Google reviews, all organic, um, all of our SEO, all of our marketing on that side, a lot of it, uh, it's all organic. We don't pay for any ads. Now, what we're doing, though, and how we've seen the biggest change is a few years ago, we had this little thing called the pandemic and everybody was locked up. <laughs> and what ended up happening is there's you know a couple apps out there that uh, mainly the number one was Clubhouse. And what was great about it was there's a group of real estate agents around the country that just start talking on Clubhouse about deals and what they're doing and how they're working. And that really started, okay, well, you know what, we can actually use this because it was more of an internal, um, you know, it was a handful of agents, about 30, 40 agents around the country. And we thought to ourselves, we can actually start using a little bit more of the social media aspect. So we started doing um, a lot more of the Instagram, um, uh, taking a look at the videos, the shorts, the YouTube um, things. And those actually generate, I mean, on average, we're generating and bringing in for our company five to six leads a week just from social marketing and organic marketing in that aspect. And then out of those, you know, obviously majority of leads are junk, <laughs> but out of those, we still get one or two really good leads. And, you know, I myself, for what I specialize in, I do probably two to three extra transactions, sale transactions a year just from YouTube videos. So, you know, I think it's changed quite a bit where we're actually starting to emulate a little bit more on the commercial side, what they're doing already on some of the residential aspects. So we're starting to see a little bit better production value coming out where, you know, we're seeing companies invest in uh, everything from gimbals for uh, for their agents to take out when they're going to look at properties to, you know, uh, lapel mics and everything else, just trying to get that aspect. The issue that we're running into on the commercial real estate side is a lot of the larger companies really like to oversee and they don't like the agents marketing themselves in that in that way because, you know, they have a lot of oversight and they have to prove all the marketing that goes out. So it's yeah. been a little low for the larger companies to take on this type of marketing and take advantage of it. Meanwhile, you have younger companies, a little bit smaller that can react quicker, you know, as I explain it. You know, it, it's a uh, uh, military family, so bear with me here. But, you know, you have a, uh, you know, you have battleships don't turn on a dime. They're big, they're powerful, they get the job done, they don't turn on a dime. But when you have a PT boat or a destroyer, they can make quick ad, uh, adaptions and changes through the course and still be just as effective as a large battleship, just more maneuverable and more adaptable. So. Yeah, um, so I definitely want to touch on that a little bit later. Um, but one of the things that I know you mentioned was Google reviews. And what we found personally, is, so that's been, I mean, we, we have like 20 that are authentic Google reviews, but we found that that's been a challenging uh, part of our business to get reviews. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious um, how you've gone about that process, because um, we have a lot of happy clients, but um, it's been like pulling teeth sometimes to get reviews. Well, you know, uh, as I when I do sales training, one of the first things I tell agents is that if you never ask, you never get. And a lot <laughs> okay. of times you can't just assume that this is that they know what you want from them. Um, and in, especially in this case. So what we do is we actually take a proactive approach. We will ask our our, our clients. We don't you know, we, 
right away, as soon as the deal's done, we'll go out and we'll say, you know, do you mind writing a, a review for me? You know, here are some of the links that you can write them on. And we try and make it as easy as possible for them. We want them to write the review themselves, obviously, but we don't want them searching for it or putting it in the wrong place. Um, you know, so always, you know, we're putting the, like, like we know how the SEO works. So we're putting the top ones that are searched the most that uh, really bring up our SEO. We put that as the first link, assuming that they're going to just do one, you know, uh, review, which, you know, human nature um, out of that. You know, we still only get about 20 percent of the people, maybe um, of those that, you know, that we actually ask that go out and actually do the review 10 to 20 percent. So it's still uh, a lower uh, hit ratio. But at the same time, you know, people say they're going to do it. They just never get around to it. So, you know, but we've been pretty proactive in actually just asking for it. And I think that's the biggest thing. Just if you ask for it, you know, you may not get it all the time, but, you know, it will come back to you eventually. Well, that's something that that I think we definitely need to implement a little bit more on our team in terms of going back to the battleship and the uh, you know destroyer or you know you know PT boat concept. Um, yeah. How how um, have you seen the evolution from kind of like the larger and mid size and smaller firms? Because I know I have an absolute blessing in terms of that because I run our our marketing and sales team here, mm-hmm. and so I have I have one owner that I have to talk to. And that's the only person that uh, I'm responsible to in terms of you know our social media program. And because of the success, I pretty much get just deference in terms of everything we, we do here. Um, h- how have you seen that? And how have you seen kind of that marketing evolution on kind of the small, medium and large firm? Well, I mean, I, I think we see that uh, on the small firms, we see it. Um, a, the evolution happening a lot quicker where they're because they can easily adapt and bring things in on the larger firms we see that where they're looking at technology and where they're looking to bring in technology is more not so much for the agents the marketing aspect at, uh, of it um, you know whether it's using chat G- gpt nowadays or whatever you know or, or different video uh, channels and things but rather they're looking to what may add value or what may look to add value to their client, whether it's the landlord or the seller. And, you know, so they're using things like, uh, there's a company called Matterport that does uh, 3D mapping for office suites. Um, they're saying, you know, easier to tour, to do this. To, you know, it, it, they're trying to make it easier or a little bit more efficient, but it's not so much of a marketing thing as they're embracing technology to make it easier for, or, or make it look better for their client. I think what we're, hap- what we're seeing with some of the larger companies is they are starting to embrace at least teams of them are starting to embrace some of the marketing um, that we're starting to see now, but it's still watered down because it's going through multiple layers of um, of bureaucracy, so to speak, with their company. Um, meanwhile, you have smaller companies like yourself, myself, um, you know, medium-sized companies even uh, that can really change and adapt very quickly. In fact, I mean, we're working with, we have an affiliate network around the country um, with uh, 27 major metros, and we're working with our affiliates, some of which are our size, some of which are, you know, 80, 120 agents. And we're actually helping them with their marketing and how to show them what to do. So I think there's a really a want. Um, it's just, I think a lot of people don't have the understanding or who to hire, what to do in that, you know, for instance, we didn't hire traditional marketing, real estate marketing people, you know, originally we brought in a person that had his master's degree from USC for the applied psychology of marketing. So, you know, we were trying to actually figure out what 
we do, where we do it, how we do it actually affects the psychology of the buyer. From there, when we saw videos start taking a, a, a look in, we brought in um, a new marketing person that came from HBO. So we had a lot of video ideas and editing. So we're taking stuff from different industries, seeing what's happening, what's going in the market, and then bringing those professionals in so that we can actually try and up our game. So now we're seeing a lot, you know, we're, we're actually, uh, uh, I'm, uh, we're part, we're members of uh, the Commercial Real Estate Influencers Summit, which was created by a chairman at Cushman in uh, Atlanta. Um, and to the point where, and in answer to your question, how's that evolution going? Um, my business partner is actually head of marketing for them. <laughs> so, so we have a, you know, a 14 agent company, but you know, this was a summit that was created by a much larger, uh, uh, well, a person in a much larger firm. And yet we're able to actually put the content out a little bit better, I think. And with better ideas and creative ideas that we can actually work around the guidelines that the company sets for us, as opposed to just going through their marketing team. Look, um, I, I think you, I think you brought up Ken Ashley, right? Um, and, uh, he's, yeah, yeah. I drove him to the airport one time when he came okay. in Chicago. I went and, and heard him speak and he needed a ride and he was a wonderful guy, uh, really. So I can't speak high enough about him. Uh, Absolutely. And that man never stops working. Wow. <laughs> I, mean, I wish I had his energy now. Uh, I mean, he's only a little bit older than I am, but wow. <laughs> and, and so I wanted to, I wanted to follow up about something because I thought it was interesting. So you touched on how you kind of structure your marketing and I know, um, I uh, was reading a Harvard Business Review study about what Elon Musk did at Tesla when he came in originally. And they were like, okay, who are you going to hire? Are you going to hire one of the, you know, one of the technical, um, uh, your CTO from one of the, you know, the, the big, the big three or the big four, right? Mm -hmm. Is it going to come from Ford? Is it going to come from GM? Is it going to come from, where, where is it going to come from? And he hired his CTO from Google because it was the whole idea was he didn't want to be like, the traditional car companies, he wanted to be where the future's going. And what mm -hmm. I've seen, what was interesting from some of uh, the folks at um, uh, the real estate influencers um, list is that they're not hiring or, or working with traditional marketers or traditional techniques. They're kind of looking at where's the future going? Because you can say whatever you want about the effectiveness of your, your CBREs, and your Cushmans and your JLLs, and they're they're great firms, and I'm not going to I'm not going to crap on them. But the way that they're marketing is they're marketing like it's still the 1980s and the 1990s when they're putting out press Absolutely. releases, and Absolutely. so it really does let down sometimes their constituents and let down some of their their let down some of their agents because the way that they're marketing is is kind of honestly, 15 years behind the times, because that's who's running some of those companies. So I'm curious, and, and I've seen a lot of the content that you guys have put out, George, mm -hmm. what would you look at in terms of trying to put out content for the future? Like what is good real estate content and influential real estate content? You know, I think, especially when it comes to influencer real estate content, you have two, two issues. You have one issue is like, you, you may have an influencer who is all about, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at me. It doesn't really bring any value. So ultimately, what we what we try and advise and, and really work with our agents, with our marketing team, is how can you bring value, whether it's through the education process or, you know, yes, it's always good to toot your own horn, um, you know, when you have a deal closed, things like that. But 
nobody wants to see that on every post. And uh, and and if you're posting every post on a deal close, hopefully you're doing it once a week. And if you are, you don't have to worry about your social marketing as much. But <laughs> if you're closing a deal a week, uh, but at the same time, what we're seeing though is that you know you're looking at the marketing, the advertising that's coming out. Your influencers now are looking more about the education process, where you know how can we help educate the buyer, um, kind of convey what to do, how to do it, or, and let them make the decision on, you know what, this may be a little too complicated for me. I should reach out to this person who talked about this or did this. Um, so there's different ways that you can, uh, structure it. Um, you know, uh, there, there's, uh, like way back in the day, I was asked to give a class, um, when we were, going into commercial real estate, one of the reasons that uh, we were asked to open up a commercial real estate division for a residential firm was they kept, residential agents kept trying to do commercial real estate and getting sued. And <laughs> yeah, that happens. Yeah. <laughs> it happens on occasion. So, but what we ended up doing was, you know, they, they, the owner of the company wanted us to come in and, you know, they said, well, give a class on commercial real estate but make it so difficult that nobody ever wants to touch it. <laughs> um, okay. All right. <laughs> but, but really, you know, uh, a lot of that is truth-based in that, you know, we, we, there's so many little small details that we have to deal with as a transactional broker every single day that it's hard to just go into a class and say, this is what you do because, you know, no deal is ever alike. So it really does bear down into the experience levels that we have and that what we bring to the table. So by actually going into some of those difficult deals, it can kind of highlight what the buyer or your potential client should look out for, what the viewer should look out for. But they also look at, well, you know what, here's a professional that let me mitigate my risk and use them instead. So it turns into a cross-marketing where you're actually just giving value, but letting them make the decision, which is a lot more powerful lead because they're actually reaching out to you now because they want to work with you. Oh, yeah. And on top of that, you know, you've really... Um you've really done your due diligence and, and you've really uh, figured out and, and understood the value of that lead once they've come in. I'm curious though, um, on a section that I think you might be able to add value. Um, certainly there's a lot of talk going on in the real estate world that we're seeing a lot of changes on the ground, particularly a lot of changes within our markets. And before we get to our final four, which is coming up, I'm curious if you could give us a little bit of, um, advice and a little tidbit uh, forecast on what you're starting to see in California's market. And I know this will get released probably in, you know, probably about three or four weeks from now. So you don't have to, uh, you know, give us, you know, what's happening today because it'll be, the world will have changed slightly, but I'm sure, you know, your market forecast won't have changed too much probably in the next 30 or 40 days. That's the lucky part about commercial real estate. It doesn't really move that fast uh, a lot of times, uh, unless there's some sort of like emergency or something that happened like back in 2008 with the debt markets crashing and things like that. <laughs> so, um, that being said, you know, right now we're actually 
I, I feel good about the market. I mean, we're, we have seen a little bit of slowdown on the number of transactions, but we're seeing a lot more people now step back up to the plate. We're actually starting to see office deals, which have been dead for the last year and a half, start happening. And we're starting to see where um, uh, certain submarkets, uh, you know, the downtown submarket, uh, north downtown, is really taking a big um, uh, d- d- not taking a big hit, exact opposite, actually. It's taken, it's gotten uh, very popular and demand has really increased where people are moving out of the traditional financial districts where there's a little bit more perhaps homeless issues uh, like down by the um, the crypto center and whatnot. And they're moving north away from that um, toward Bunker Hill. Um, we're also seeing though retail going gangbusters. And, you know, one of the, one of the numbers that's out there because, you know, the news is interesting in that bad news sells. <laughs> so you have to take it with a grain of salt and really investigate and understand what's happening. You know, so a couple of weeks ago, there's a big article out that 5,500 store closures around the nation, retail store closures. What they didn't say was there's also 9,900 store openings that were just announced a uh, total of. So, you know, we're actually seeing double the amount of almost double the amount of store openings than store closures. So, you know, we're seeing good stuff happening. Investors are still there. We're seeing a lot more cash deals because of the debt markets right now and the situations that are out there for that. Um, But we're still making deals happen, um, which is good, you know, and and it's still moving. So I wanted to follow up. I know you touched on the office market. Um, One of the things we've been seeing in Chicago is kind of, I wouldn't say, you know, massive consolidations, but there's certainly been a little bit of movement. And I'd say there's there's moderate downsizing going on, particularly as people move to more of a flex market. The whole idea that, you know, when the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times came out with that, you know, off is office dead, you know, titles, you're like, okay, come on. Like, uh, but um, I'm curious, we've seen a lot of growth in kind of the small to midsize offices, your threes, your fives, a lot of kind of family to mid-sized regional office and a little bit of hub and spoke. Is that something you're seeing? I know LA is famous for its traffic. Are you seeing people go closer to home or uh, are you just seeing just kind of a, a general, you know, smaller shift occurring in the office market? Um, well, within the Southern California marketplace or LA marketplace, it's probably a little bit more of a smaller shift that we're seeing. Um, you know, we are seeing there, there's definitely a little bit of downsizing. Um, we are seeing a lot more availability come up as with the sublets or uh, companies consolidating um, where, you know, they're just moving in a little bit in. But we're also seeing a lot more new companies come in to backfill some of that space as well. Um, so, you know, I think it's a smaller shift that what we're seeing because we're also seeing some growth. Um, you know, there's a company that took on 60,000 square feet just in downtown LA just last week, um, you know, and, and they're expanding out. So there's definitely a mix of both. Um, I, I think that each submarket, even within the city itself, each submarket is slightly different as well, where there's a little bit more demand in certain areas um, at, versus, uh, you know, uh, some soft markets, you know, the downtown, south downtown LA markets, one of the highest vacancy rates right now. You know, West Hollywood is also um, having some of the highest vacancy rates that they've ever experienced are at above 20%. Um, but this is also on a retail side. But I think that also has to go in, hand in hand with some of the politics. You know, West Hollywood has the highest um, uh, minimum wage by over 20, uh, 25% higher than the next highest minimum wage in LA. 
<laughs> you know, so you have you're, you're actually seeing companies that are moving from West Hollywood just to a bordering area in L.A. just to save money off of whether it's taxes, whether it's the um, employment costs, whatever, just cutting those costs as much as they can. So they're actually moving a little bit out. So I think each submarket's a little bit different. But overall, um, we're having some, you know, it, it's still I, I still feel good about it. You know, and the best part is, you know, we've always done well in what is considered down markets. Um, where, whether it was the mid '90s in California or late 2000s, um, we've always done very well, if not better, in the down markets or what was considered a down market. And I think a lot of that goes to the fact that, you know, you have a lot of agents out there that really don't have the training or the experience on what to expect or how to go about it or how to plan. You know, a lot of companies don't take into account. Um, you know, they train for real estate, but they don't train for mentality of being a real estate agent, um, you know, where it could potentially be feast or famine and down markets. And so you have a lot of younger agents that get out of the business completely because they've been spending every dime that they've been making for the last two, three years. And uh, all of a sudden it slows down or dries up and they're out of the business and they're looking for a paid job. So, you know, I think that is a company should also be looking at that as well, how to help their agents weather through the storm, whether it's showing him how to go through passive income, create that investments or um, expand their pipeline. Look, I, uh, I've seen the same thing here at our, at our firm, uh, being somebody who's fourth generation um, in the real estate game. Uh, I'm, I'm a big saver. And so uh, um, my wife always jokes, she'd be like, you know, you know, you, you, you save way too much money, but you know, when that uh, that lean time comes, it's always nice to be ready, and and that's something that I think a lot of agents who um, came about in the good times, particularly you know the, this Goldilocks period that we've been living in. Um, oh, the last ten oh, years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean it's been crazy, right? Uh, money has been free, and as a result, there've been all sorts of wild and crazy deals, particularly on some of the uh, institutional side. And uh, we're going to get into a period where it's going to be leaner times for a while. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, if, if you didn't save for, uh, you know, colder weather, I think it's going to be difficult. Um, we're, gonna, we're about to get into our final four. And, um, George, we're going to have to ask you some predictions. Uh, but before we do, thank you very much for hopping on the podcast thus far. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. And we, we'll, we'll have to have you on in the future. Um, getting into the final four. I'm curious, um, one of the questions we always like to ask, particularly agents with experience, is where you see the market going in the next 10 years. And it could be a segment of the real estate market. It could be um, the entire real estate world, you know, via tech. Um, where, where do you see real estate going in general, you know, over the next decade? You know, um, for infill areas and cities, I mean, we're already seeing this happen where you're seeing a lot of mixed-use projects. Um, I think you're going to start seeing stuff where it's going to be a little bit more geared toward a live and work in the area. We talked about traffic earlier. You know, I know people that literally won't, you know, they live in their bubble of Brentwood and Santa Monica. They won't go east of the 405, south of the 10, or north of the uh, of the uh, Mulholland. And uh they'd never go out there because of traffic. So they're missing out on a lot of other places, but we're starting to see that that's happening now. Um, 
but also, you know, I think with that, it also brings opportunity for uh, businesses, especially on the retail side, where, you know, if they get a really, like, you have a great restaurant in downtown LA, um, it's very easy to open a sister restaurant now in the west side and not have to worry about um, uh, cannibalizing off one another. And so I think we're going to start seeing a little bit more of that where we're seeing um pseudo chain, so to speak, you know, where you're seeing a lot nicer uh, uh, boutiques and restaurants opening up multiple locations within the metro that they're in, but never really expanding out to become a real chain. Um, in addition to that, uh, there is a big push, at least in California, for chain and also Chicago, uh, uh, <laughs> housing for office space in the downtown market. You know, I think that that is a potential, but it's not going to happen for a good five to even 10 years, because I think there's too many logistics that they have to worry about right now. I mean, the cost of a high-rise office building already, you're already in luxury housing. And then there's the cost to convert that to housing. Because, you know, most office buildings, as you know, um, they're not going to have the uh, systems in place to, uh, you know, for bathrooms and uh, uh, kitchens and, and everything else, the plumbing issues and gas line issues or electric issues. Um, so it's going to cost quite a bit to actually convert that back over. So really, it's not going to help. I don't think it's going to help as much on the housing crisis that we're having, especially in the lower income housing um, that we're, we're in need of, because it's going to really build that up. So until the government can actually make it affordable um, by cutting permit costs, uh, streamlining uh, the uh, reuse, adaptive reuse projects, things like that, until they can really make it affordable for developers, I don't think we're going to see that. So I think we're still a good five, 10 years down the road for that as well. I think we're going to see a handful of them, but it's really going to be more on the luxury side versus really helping out on the uh, lower income uh, workforce housing. So I saw something interesting, uh, and I'm going to follow up on that um, uh, redevelopment uh, of potentially office to uh, residential. Um, mm -hmm. A couple developers who are working on possible projects in San Francisco said one of the biggest hangups could be reassessing value. Uh, yeah. I know California has a unique tax system uh, in terms of how they keep older historical values down and new values uh, go drastically up sometimes after redevelopment. Do you think that's a thing in general that uh, California might look at reevaluating or do you think that's just something that de developers and redevelopers are going to have to negotiate going forward as we kind of see this transition? Well, no, I think this is something that this, the state should do um, both the state as well as the city, because, you know, right now you're absolutely right. You know, the with Prop 13 that's in place, essentially the properties are not reassessed for new taxes in California until a sale happens or major work or development is done on the property. So when they file for permits and when they start doing this major work, they're going to add that value and they're going to end, end up getting hit with a higher property tax cost while taking on the risk that you know, this is what we think people want is to move into an office, mixed use office um, with office and residential as well. Um, so until that can happen, I think that's going to take some government action to do that. That's one of the key steps that's going to be needed for developers to actually step in. So you're absolutely correct on that. So I, I know we've been Nostradamus for the, uh, you know, the last um, uh, couple minutes, but I'm curious if we can take a step back. And uh, G George, one of my favorite questions that I like to ask folks is looking back, you know, 
at young George when he's leaving high school, what would be your uh, your one minute spiel of advice that you could give to try to uh, you know uh, give some life advice to a, a young George? You know, um, this has nothing to do with real estate or potentially even it, true life advice. And this is what I've told my kids uh, from early on is, you know, and because when I got out of high school, originally my parents wanted me to be an engineer. I started off as a computer science major in college, realized I didn't want to sit there all day in an office working on a computer um, and, and coding and doing that stuff. So I ended up going into business thinking that gives me the most leeway and uh, viability of being able to go into almost any field. And even getting out, I mentioned how I got into real estate. It was a fluke. I wasn't looking into it because I really didn't think of that as a potential career opportunity. So what I've always told my kids from early on is really find out what you really love to do and do it. <laughs> don't worry about it. You know, don't worry about other people um, thinking, you know what you're doing. Uh, you know, it, it, don't worry about the money necessarily. Um, you know, obviously that's always a factor, but at the same time, if you're doing something you absolutely love, you know, you're going to make those adjustments and the money itself is not as important as if you do something you love, then you never work a day in your life. You're actually enjoying every single day, getting up, going in, doing work and having fun doing it. So, you know, to that end, you know, um, I've always tried to foster kids to do what, you know, my, my son at a very, very early age wanted to be a pilot. He's now a pilot for Republic Airlines. My daughter wanted to go into forensic psychology. She's working right now, um, getting work experience before she goes back for her master's. Um, although now it's changing a little bit because she's a therapist for um, for uh, uh, autistic children and she's loving it. So she's finding that something that's maybe something she likes even more so. Um, so, you know, for the advice I give for anybody, Find out what you love. You know, if you're in high school, find out what you love doing. Think about it. Actually think about it and just go and do it. Don't be afraid. You know, um, you know, the, the easiest, succinct way, dance like nobody's looking. <laughs> you know, just have fun doing it. Enjoy what you're doing. Look, I think that's phenomenal advice. Um, and one of the ways that we like to get advice is through books. I'm a voracious reader. I, I, I love uh, reading books business books, philosophy, you know, anything that I can get my hands on. But for this podcast in particular, is there a book that's really influenced you or your career that you would like to recommend to our listeners? Uh, well, a few. The one I just read um, is Question-Based Selling. Okay. Right. And I think that actually is really key to a lot of salespeople because a lot of times, you know, like I said, salespeople tend to be outgoing. They tend to talk a lot. In case you couldn't tell. <laughs> but a lot of times they talk about themselves and they don't really listen to what the client's telling them. So it's all about asking questions and just sitting back and listening and leading the person down the path for the sale. Look, I, uh, that's, that's, that's wonderful advice. There's so many folks out there that talk too much um, uh, and really they, they should just be asking questions, at least asking why. Um, yeah. And uh the reason why we started this whole podcast is to reach out to individuals like you, George, folks that are influencing the real estate market, um, shaping the world, and to try to gain a little bit more insight on uh, where the real estate world is going and, and as a result, our entire world. And so I'm curious, um, before we end this podcast, and I'll hold you to it, who's the next person we should bring on? 
Oh. You know, there is a young lady who's the president of Lee and Associates up in San Francisco by the name of Jessica Mauser. Okay. Yeah. She is probably one of the smartest people, especially when it comes to the Bay Area. And even not just her asset class. The, I mean, she is the epitome of what a broker should be doing. Um, you know, you can talk to her about industrial, and she doesn't do any industrial. She knows everything that's going on in the market. Um, you know, and and that, but that is what, how you add value to your clients by understanding what the other asset classes are doing and what's happening in the marketplace, so that you can then play off that and take advantage of that and open up in those areas as well. Um, so, I would probably recommend Jessica Mauser. So, you know, and she actually puts out some pretty good content when she gets to it. When I say that, only reason I say that is I think there are six kids and three cats. So. Hey, look, I've got limited. (laughs) Look, I've got a a little one on the way. And uh, I'll say this absolutely definitively. um, I can only imagine. uh, what it's like. So I, I'm never going to throw any shade on any broker with a with a family, particularly a large family. Yep. So the last question um, that we're going to get to is the second most important question, George. And it's how do we, you know, how is it that someone who's listened to the podcast said, hey, this George guy, he seems pretty awesome. I'd love to reach out. What's the best way to get in contact? You know, um, best way, easiest way for me is typically be via email. And that is uh, G-P-I-N-O at cbicommercial.com. Uh, Pino's kind of like the wine, but no tea. So an odd, short Italian name. <laughs> hey, George, so, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. And uh, look, thanks for having we got ha- to have you on in the future. Thanks again to George. We appreciate his insights. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a five-star rating, or review. Your comments, interactions, and subscriptions truly matter and help us continue to provide quality guests. You can follow us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lamphere at The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.